Well, we are going to keep pushing here through Jeremiah chapter 2. In the last few weeks, we have been looking at the beginning of the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah's earliest prophecy to the nation of Judah. And if you've been with us, you realize that this passage has been pretty tough. I mean, today's reading was pretty tough. These are hard words that God has for his people. And most of them are concerning one subject. They're talking about the, the nature of sin. That's what we've been talking about the last few weeks. And that's where we're going in the next couple of weeks. We're talking about the nature of sin and the different ways that it's manifest in our lives. And so uh, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about sin as idolatry. And then last week, we talked about sin as a lack of fear of God. And now this week, we are going to talk about sin as spiritual blindness. That's our topic this morning. Sin as spiritual blindness. This is a spiritual blindness is a, a language that is used for sin all throughout Scripture. And if you recall, if you've ever read through the Gospels, you may remember that Jesus himself, when he begins his ministry in the Gospel of Luke, he unrolls a scroll of Isaiah and declares that's his mission. He says, God has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The claim of Scripture is that spiritual blindness is something that affects every single one of us. It is an affliction uh, for the entire world. And as such, it's something that we need to understand. Uh, spiritual blindness, our sin, has rendered us incapable of understanding things. It's rendered us incapable of, of understanding even life itself. And so this morning, I want us to, to examine that. I want us to see the ways our sin blinds us. Um, and I want us to see especially three aspects of that. First, that it blinds us to our nature. It blinds us to our nature. It blinds us to our need. And then finally, it blinds us to our salvation. And we're just going to jump right in here and, and talk about how it blinds us to our nature. You probably picked up, as Melissa was reading, that this is a vivid passage. It is extremely descriptive. It's, it's kind of hard to listen to. There are over a half dozen illustrations and images that uh, Jeremiah speaks to describe the nature of Judah's guilt. He calls them, amongst other things, he says they are like a thief who has been caught red-handed. He says that they are like people whose skirts are covered in blood and yet claiming that they're innocent. And then after saying that, he points out the evidence. He says, if you look on every high hill and under every green tree, if you look in the valley, these traditional places where they had set up temples to idols and other gods. He says, the evidence is everywhere. You're guilty. You're blatantly guilty. You're obviously guilty. And then there's this refrain. Verse 23, he says, how can you say, I am not unclean? Verse 35, how can you say, I am innocent? Behold, I will bring you to judgment for saying, I have not sinned. I am not unclean. I'm innocent. I haven't sinned. Now that sounds a little bit absurd. 
to consider that the evidence is everywhere, that it's obvious that they're guilty, and yet they deny it. Who wants to unplug the phone? (laughs) I know from experience that won't be the first ring. Um, But there's nothing unique that happens in this passage. Denying our sin is nothing unique. It is a basic human instinct. We see this on display all the time. We see this uh, on display even with the smallest things. And if you, you don't believe me, just ask your roommate. Just, just ask your spouse about this. We deny our sin. And we have all kinds of ways to do it. We have all kinds of tactics to minimize our sin. We, we blame shift. You're being selfish. I'm not being selfish. You're being selfish. We downplay it. You're, you're really angry. Well, the only reason I'm angry is because of the traffic and because of X, Y, and Z. We defend ourselves, right? You're, why are you always so distracted? I'm not distracted. I, you should be thankful I'm so present. <laughs> we compare ourselves to others. You, you work too hard. You say, I don't work nearly as hard as so-and-so. In fact, I'm, I'm here a lot. That's our natural inclination. Our natural, our natural inclination is to do everything but admit our guilt. Why is that? Well, our passage suggests it's because we are in denial. We are in denial of the basic fact of our nature. We are in denial of the fact that we are sinners. We don't want to admit that imperfection is a part of who we are. And even if we get cornered, even if we get backed up, even if we find ourselves having to admit that we've made a mistake, that we've done wrong, we always want to act like it was an outlier, like it was an exception. Well, here's why. I know I did wrong, but that's not how I normally am. We don't want to think of ourselves as the kind of people who are prone to anger and distraction and overwork. But Scripture says... Sin is not an outlier. Sin is more than just some occasional moral lapse. Sin is more than just our failure to abide by a certain set of rules. But it says sin is the very essence of our nature. Romans chapter 3, it famously says, All are under sin. No one is righteous. No, not one. It says we are all sinners. But one of the fundamental characteristics of our sin nature is that it blinds us to that fact. Our sin blinds us to our sinfulness. And that that kind of seems insane, right? It seems insane that Judah could stand here and claim innocence when they were obviously guilty. But we do the same thing all the time. Maybe, I don't know what Judah was thinking, uh, I told you all in previous weeks, this book is, is written, the beginning of it, during a, a really great time of reform in their history. They had a, a good ruler. They were starting to obey these ceremonial practices, maybe better than they had at, at previous times. And perhaps these people were just comparing themselves to other generations and saying, you know, compared to them, we're doing all right. Or looking at the, the other pagan nations around them and saying, what are you talking about? We're innocent. Look at us compared to them. And it's the same with us. 
If we think of our sin that way, if we think of our sin just as, as a, a list of particular violations that we have or haven't committed, we will never think that we're guilty. We'll never think that we are sinners. But Scripture says sin is not just something we've, we do occasionally. But it says that we are, it is a condition. It's a condition we're in. First John, our New Testament reading today, it says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And then it goes on to say, if we say we have not sinned, we make God a liar. Do you see the distinction between those two verses? On one hand, he's saying, if we say we have not sinned, and then it also says, if we say we have no sin. John's trying to, that's not just a, a restatement. He's trying to tell us that, that something, uh, something really important. That sin isn't just something we do sometimes, but sin is a condition that we are in. It's something that we have. It's more than just the occasional bad thing. It's a disposition of our heart. It's a disposition of our heart that rejects God and his claims over us and instead asserts our own will and our own way. And you notice those two verses I just read. It says, if we say we have no sin, if we say we don't have sin. Why did he write that? Well, he wrote that because we all say that. We all at some time in our life say, I haven't done it. I'm not guilty. That's what sin does. It blinds us. It blinds us to our guilt. It convinces us that we're all right. That things aren't so bad. That our problems are manageable. That we can handle them on our own. But spiritually, we're blind. That's what this is trying to tell us. Spiritually, we are like people covered in blood who are claiming innocence. Sin blinds us to our nature. And the second thing I want to talk about this morning is that it blinds us to our need. Verse 23 says, look, look, this is, I think, the essence of God's word that we're looking at this morning. Look, he says, how can you say, <laughs> how can you say that you're innocent? Just, he says, look at your way in the valley. A lot of the commentators I've read have suggested that uh, while the valley was a, a known place for idol worship, but also there are, are places in Scripture that tell us the valley was a place of human sacrifice. That it could be the case, as God's saying, look at your way in the valley, that he's saying, look at the bones and the bodies. How can you say that you're innocent? Look at all the evidence. How can you deny it? Um, I think my son, Ambrose, if any of you have, have met him, has established himself in our congregation as our preeminent dessert thief. I don't know if, if, if you're aware of this, but whenever we have like snack food out there, if there's anything sweet, like cake or, or especially brownies, we have to guard that stuff with our life because he is gonna take them and eat as many brownies as a four-year-old can possibly eat. And there have been more than one occasion where I've said, okay, buddy, that's enough. What, three, four, no more brownies, please. And he says, okay, daddy. And then I'll come back there and find him with his face covered in chocolate, his mouth full. And I say, did you eat another brownie? No. <laughs> right? God says this to these people. He says, how can you say you're innocent? Look at the evidence. The evidence is right there. But 
you know, there's something different here. It's not like Ambrose because you get the sense that Judah's not just lying, but Judah is deceiving themselves as well. It's like they honestly believe they haven't done anything wrong. In that way, they're more like addicts. They're, they're more like someone in the throes of a drug addiction. They don't even see how destructive their sin is. Even when it's controlling them, even when it's ruining their lives, they can't see it. This is, this is intervention language that we're looking at. Look, wake up. Can't you see? Look what you're doing to yourself. He says, look, you are like a restless camel running here and there. You're like a wild donkey in the wilderness in her heat, sniffing the wind. Her lust can't be restrained. None who seek her need to weary themselves. In, their, in her month, they will find her. Keep your feet from going on shod and your throat from thirst. Behold, but behold, you said, it's hopeless, for I've loved foreign gods, and after them I will go. What he says there is, first he compares them to a camel running through the desert. It, it's somewhat like you know, the way we might use a chicken with its head cut off. It's this idea of zigzagging back and forth, aimlessness, being tossed about to and fro. And then he moves on to say, you're not just like that. You're like a donkey in heat. And it's, it's graphic. That is a graphic <clears throat> image. He says that sniffing the air, anyone who's seeking will find her. That you're sleeping with everyone in sight. And then finally, he just goes to this picture of hopeless desperation, right? Your feet unshod. He's barefoot and thirsty, running crazed through the desert, saying, I can't control myself. I have to go after these false gods. This is who I am. That is what sin does to us. Now, we live in a culture that kicks against this idea. We live in a culture that resists and rejects the notion that there is a way we should live. That there is a right way to live. One of the core values of our society, you might disagree with me, but I, I don't think you will, is, is we say no one has the right to tell anyone else how they're supposed to live. We believe that, that it is up to each individual person to decide the way they're going to live. But historically, this is actually something recent. This is something new. This is not the way things have always been. I was just reading um, one of Tim Keller's new books on preaching, and he talks about some of the different cultural shifts that have happened over the years. And this is one that he, he points out uh, that I think is really helpful, and I want to share a little bit of that with you just talking about the way our, our worldview has shifted um, compared to the ancient world and even more recent times. He says, in, in the ancient world, the ancients saw individuals as less important than the tribe or the clan. And that wasn't always a good thing, um, but that's how they viewed it. And then when Christianity came along, Christianity had this message that said every person has been created in the image of God, and therefore, every person possesses dignity. And that's something we celebrate. That's something good, right? As uh, in history, as Christian values started to take root and shape our culture, that has become 
a common value that is almost universal, at least in, in the West. We, we believe that, that individuals have inherent dignity. We, you know, our Constitution, we believe these truths are self-evident. Um, but now we've seen a more recent shift. Uh, there's been this new narrative that has started shaping in more recent decades um, where individual, individualism has taken a further step. Today, what Keller says, he says, Western secularism is radically and increasingly individualistic. Now the highest purpose of a social order is not to further the interests of any one group or to promote any particular values or virtues, but rather to set all individuals free to live as they choose. In this culture, he says, choice becomes the one sacred value and discrimination is the only moral evil. <clears throat> In other words, we have moved from simply valuing the dignity of individuals to enthroning the self as the highest purpose in the world. We now live our lives based on this presupposition that we're free to live any way that we choose as long as it doesn't hurt somebody else. And that's an idea that it's not only pervasive in our culture, but it's per pervasive in our church. This is the world we live in. And that means today, for each and every one of us, uh, we are all making the same claim that Judah as a nation is making in this book. Where Judah says in verse 20, after God has freed them from their bonds, they say, I will not serve. In verse 31, they say, we are free. We will not come to you anymore. But here's the problem. Israel's not free. They're asserting their autonomy. They're asserting their independence. But that has not led them to freedom. It hasn't led them to happiness. It hasn't led them to success. It has led them to slavery. Instead of the freedom that they proclaimed and desired, look at them. They're addicts. They're seeking out their next fix. They're being tossed from one place to the next, desperately looking for something that can fulfill them. They did it with nations. They did it with different gods. They are not free. And neither are we. See, the world tells us that we can be happy if we just follow our hearts. But Scripture tells us that is the one thing we can't do. Next week, we're going to look at Jeremiah 17, where it says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. It says our hearts have a sickness. Our hearts have a sickness. Our hearts have a pervasive and driving emptiness within them. And that emptiness is sometimes buried. It's sometimes deep down. It's sometimes lurking, and we only think about it late at night. But sometimes it is raging. Sometimes it is controlling. That's what our nature is like. We cannot escape a sense of lacking in our lives. And that 
lacking, that sense of emptiness is, is always driving us. It's always driving us to find our fulfillment in something, whether it's a, a relationship or a job or, or accomplishment or fame or sex or even addiction. We're always looking to be fulfilled by something. And the notion that we should be able to live our lives as we choose, the notion that we should be able to be free is a lie. We can't be free because we are always looking externally for our value. We are always looking for something else to give our lives meaning and purpose. We're always looking for something else to give us worth. It's obvious. When you sit back and, and think it, we can just observe this in the world. I mean, that 80s song, right? Uh, the the Eurythmics, I say, everybody's looking for something, right? It's, it's common knowledge. We're all seeking something. But sin blinds us. Sin tells us we're free. But if we could just see, if we could just look, if our eyes could just be opened, we would realize that we are owned by this inner emptiness. We are owned by this need for fulfillment that is sucking us from one place to the next. Our jobs own us. Our need for the approval of others owns us. Our lusts own us. Our sexuality owns us. And in our effort to be free and to decide our own identity, in our effort to declare who we are, our identity has enslaved us. And we end up like, like these people in verse 25. We say, it's hopeless. I can't help it. This is just who I am. And then when that doesn't work out, we try something else. When that source of identity doesn't satisfy us, we go somewhere else. Like Judah, trying to fill our emptiness by taking one lover after the next and going on and on and on until we're empty and we're broken down. We're blind. We're blind to our need. And that's bad enough. right? We're blind to our nature. We don't see that this is deeper than just behavior. We're blind to our need. We don't see that this is, is pulling us around. But probably the most devastating part of this passage, the most devastating truth that we see in Scripture and that we find in life is that our sin has also made us blind to our salvation. Our sin makes us blind to our salvation. As we were hearing all these bad things... It was probably hard to pick up on some of the good things God was saying about himself. Uh, but he does. He, he's, he declares some of his goodness to these people. He says, long ago, I broke your yoke and I burst your bonds. He asks a question. He says, have I been a wilderness or a land of thick darkness to you? And the, the answer is no, I haven't been a wilderness, but I've led you through the wilderness into a land flowing with milk and honey. He says, can a, a virgin forget her ornaments or a bride her attire? Yet my people have forgotten me. He says, God, God says he's been faithful to these people. He has been their, he has been their source of joy and hope. He's been the ornaments that decorate them, and yet they have forgotten them. And that is a great picture of our spiritual blindness at work. 
That's what it looks like. We cannot see our guilt, and so we cannot see our God. Seeing our guilt and seeing our God, they always go hand in hand. Those two things are are deeply connected. Even that passage in Romans that I, I read a moment ago, it says, we're all under sin. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. Knowing our guilt and knowing our God go hand in hand. One of the commentators writing on this passage said the whole point here is that if Judah could only grasp their sin, they would be able to repent. But that's the one thing they can't do. It's the one thing that we can't do. And it's been that way since the fall. Do you remember the story of the fall? Adam and Eve in the garden. What was the thing that that Adam says when, when God said, did you eat from the tree? He says, the woman that you gave me, right? And she says, the serpent. The most difficult words from that moment and until today, the most difficult words for any of us to say are, I was wrong, I'm guilty. We're blind to our sin. And that means that we are blind to our Savior. But I want to suggest here that the very existence of this book is good news for us. The very existence uh, of this book, there is a reason why God gave Judah this word. There's a reason why he proclaimed this to his people, and there's a reason why we have it today, why it's been given to the church, why this morning, thousands of years later, we're, we're still preaching this message. Because what it tells us is that God is coming after his people. What it tells us is that God is in the business of opening the eyes of the blind. Like Jesus said when he began his ministry, that he is here to restore sight to the blind. God wants us to see our sin. He wants us to look. He wants us to open our eyes and see. But that's hard. And and whenever that happens, it's really painful. When you get a glimpse of your sin for what it really is, it, it hurts. Do you remember the story of the prodigal son? The story of the young son who demanded his inheritance and he took it and he went off to a foreign country and he he spent it all and squandered it and ends up laying in the muck with a bunch of pigs. When Luke tells that story, he says, there's a moment when that son finally saw his sin. He says, when he came to himself... He said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? He followed his heart. He did the thing that should have made him happy. He did the thing that promised to give him life, but when he came to his senses, what he realized was 
He was dying. He was perishing because of that. Seeing our sin is painful. When you realize that, that you've lived your life just like some of these descriptions of Judah, chasing after one thing in the next, there has to be this moment where you look at yourself and you say, what have I done? What have I done? And maybe some of you are there right now. Maybe some of you, as we've talked about the dynamics of addiction and, and this seeking for fulfillment, maybe you're, if you're being honest, you have to admit that that's how you're living. That you're the wild donkey chasing after its lusts. Maybe you're in that place where you feel like an empty husk. Worn out. Like the addict who has hit rock bottom. And if that's you, then I have good news for you this morning. Because the message we have here is that your sin cannot keep you away from your Savior. Did you know that? Did you know that sin can't keep you away from God? Are you like, wait, I don't know. That doesn't sound exactly right. Sin can't keep you away from God. It's true. Here's, Here's why. The gospel message, it's simple. It goes like this. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. It says none of us are righteous. Not any of us. No no one. And because we are guilty, God the Son had to come to earth. The innocent Son of God had to come to earth and take on our guilt. On the cross, that's what was happening. He was taking the punishment that we deserved. And in his death and resurrection, he conquered sin. He conquered death. And the promise for us, the promise is that everyone who repents, everyone who looks to Christ for their salvation will be saved. But our passage says, Behold, I will bring you to judgment. And he doesn't say, Because you sinned. He says, I will bring you to judgment for saying, I have not sinned. You see, the only way that sin will keep us from God is if we refuse to acknowledge it's a problem. The only way that sin will keep us from God is if we refuse to admit it. If we try to minimize it and wipe it away and act like it's not there. If we do like these people in Judah did, though you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, the stain of your guilt is before me. We can't clean ourselves. But the promise we read this morning, just like God declares, even though you wash yourself, you can never make yourselves clean. He also declares this. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do you remember that song, Come Ye Sinners? We sing it from time to time around here. There's a line in that song. It says, all the fitness he requires is to see our need of him. 
God doesn't require that we have not ever sinned. He doesn't require that we have no sin, but what he requires is that we see our need. And that's what makes this gospel glorious. When Jesus opens your eyes to your sin, it hurts. Like Isaiah, we looked at it last week. You say, woe is me. Like the prodigal son, we say, what have I done? But the gospel tells us, if it's true, what it says is that even though our sin hurts, if we are in Christ, it has no power over us. His blood has cleansed us from all unrighteousness. If that's true, it means that this is the only way to be free. And to be really free. It means we are really free. If you're in Christ, you are really free. You are free to admit that you are a mess. You don't have to blame shift. You don't have to minimize your guilt. You don't have to deny and defend yourselves. You don't have to do any of that. But you can say, I am a sinner. In fact, I'm a lot worse than I thought I was. I'm a lot worse than I ever thought. But in Christ, I am more loved and more accepted than I ever imagined I'd be. Now, some of you this morning need to hear this. <clears throat> some of you right now are living lives where you are enslaved. And you know it. You know you are being tossed around and abused. And some of you need to hear this because you've gone back. You've come to Jesus, but you've run back to those idols and they have made you forget the gospel. You have gone back to those empty cisterns we talked about a few weeks ago and you have forgotten God's grace. And you're hiding. And you're, in, you're denying. And you're acting like it's not a reality. And you're afraid to admit. Because what will people think? But I want to invite you, if you are here this morning, and if you see your sin, if you recognize it's a problem, you're in good company. If you can say, I need Jesus to save me, that's all it takes. All the fitness he requires is that we see our need of him. Let's pray. Father, um, the hard truth of the Christian life is that we are sinners. That you save us from our sin, but we are still wrestling. And Lord, we are, are quick to forget your mercy and your grace. Like the people of Judah, we are like a bride who has forgotten to put on her wedding dress. <laughs> We're foolish. And time after time, we have run back to these things that have only left us destroyed and devastated. But Lord, I thank you that you tell us you are a God who is in the business of, of opening our eyes to our blindness. And so I want to pray for everyone in this room, God, that you would give us eyes to see through the false promises of our idols. 
Lord, you would let us to perceive this world with full spiritual reality behind it. God, that you would give us the grace to stop running after things that are killing us and instead run to you. Lord, I want to pray for that Christian who is here this morning, who is plagued by guilt, who is full of fear, who thinks they're the only sinner in this room and that no one would understand. Lord, I want to pray for for that person that you would assure them of your grace. That you would assure them that no one is surprised by their sin except for them. And that your death on the cross counted for that sin as well. Father, finally, I want to pray to everyone who's come here this morning who doesn't know you. Who's seeking for some truth and some meaning in their life. I pray, Lord, that you would show them who you are. I pray, God, that they would cry out to you for salvation. And we thank you for your assurance that you would respond. Lord, we pray in Jesus' name.